Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. My name is Kyle McMillan, one of your co-hosts on the channel. And today I have the pleasure of talking with two authors yet again today, um, Amos Mack and Rocco Payatos. Am I saying your last name right? Basically, it's Payatos. Payatos. Yes, thank you. Um, And their edited volume, Original Plumbing, The Best 10 Years of Trans Male Culture, how are you two doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And, you know, before we get started, I thought it would be useful for our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So maybe let's start with Rocco. If you want to give us a little bit of introduction into yourself and how you sort of um, came upon this project of original plumbing. Yeah, sure. Um, I... Uh, began my medical transition about 20 years ago. Um, my career as a writer was uh, from this like slam poetry scene into making hip hop. And then uh, I sort of transitioned while I was performing um, on stage, basically. And at that time, um, it was noteworthy because there weren't a lot of uh, there wasn't much in the form of representation around trans men existing, uh, let alone creating art, writing, music, uh, film, anything. Um, so when Amos and I uh, began our collaboration, uh, it seemed like the most exciting project that we could do because 10 years into my transition, uh, I was excited at the idea of creating something where trans people, trans men specifically, didn't have to talk about their transness as much as they could talk about and celebrate whatever they were working on and how they were contributing to society at large and sort of their, their bigger lives. Yeah. And Amos, if you want to introduce yourself as well. Yeah. um, I'm Amos Mack. I'm the co-editor of original plumbing, the best of 10 years of trans male culture. And um, I'm Rocco and I met probably in the early two thousands in San Francisco and uh, it wasn't until like nine years later that we reconnected on a level creatively. And I had been photographing different trans men in the San Francisco community because as a visual artist and as a writer, I wanted there to be a space for trans men to be able to tell their own story um, and to feel beautiful and like they had a voice. Um, and as someone who grew up obsessed with magazines and you know zines teen magazines and everything like that i thought it would be fun to make like a a a zine to for the photographs and interviews with the people that were being featured in this project and when um rocco heard about the project he had some ideas to make it much bigger and that's really how how the whole conversation started yeah and i think one of the um points that was made, I believe, in the, um, you know, sort of forward and preface parts of the book, um, which I think is something that um, for those that uh, experience this in their lives, sort of uh, trans culture and being trans, um, I think that one of the things that uh, gets overlooked by other folks is that You know, when we're talking about or when you all talk about in this magazine, trans male culture, you know, you the point is made that masculinity is not only it's not just sort of one thing in the trans experience. Right. And I think part of the um, purpose of this compilation of original plumbing is to show all the varieties that masculinity can sort of come in in that experience. So, you know, I kind of wanted to before we jump into the different issues that are um, highlighted in this compilation or in this edited volume, 
I kind of wanted to get a sense of how did it, how did this magazine come about? Um, so if you two want to take it away in terms of what is the origin story of original plumbing? I mean, I, I just described the, the tiny beginning part of the origin story of the photo project and the idea to make a zine with interviews where the models could then speak for themselves. And then Rocco having ideas to make it more of an ongoing project and the origin of the term original plumbing came from me seeing it in um, Craigslist posts of people posting, you know, that I'm a trans man looking for, you know, X, Y, and Z, and I have original plumbing below. And I thought that was really fun and an interesting uh, title for a project where trans men had, you know, complete control and for once um, kind of flipping the script on the most asked question for trans people is often, you know, what's in your pants? So by naming the magazine Original Plumbing, that was me being cheeky. Rocco, thoughts? Yeah, it sort of of gets it out of the way, right? Um, I think think it's important to sort of name it, uh, especially for outside gays, uh, immediately. Um, My first album I I named Let's Fuck, Then Talk About My Problems, because it seemed like an entry point for people uh, to kind of understand or digest the existence of trans people is to... Um, strip you down to nothing but genitals and then um, then they can kind of rebuild you and see you as a person so I think at that point when Amos and I Amos had come to me originally asking if he could take my picture for uh, for this project that, that he was starting to think about and I think for me the big driving force and desire to be a part of it and then to kind of uh, balloon it up into something potentially larger was that there was no media and still to this day, really is a very small offering of media um, specifically about trans men and their whole picture lives. And at the time, having been on stage performing for almost a decade as a trans guy, uh, I was frankly very exhausted by an outside gaze and desire to kind of unpack my transness as a result of me releasing an album and touring with it. So if I was in Washington, D.C. playing a show, the article would deal largely with the fact that I was trans and much less it would be like a footnote that I had released an album and was playing a show. Uh, so so when Amos had this um, initial idea, I think for me it was 10 years of exhaustion and uh, that felt like a spark and energized me to want to be a part of creating this larger documentation and media representation and platform for trans men who, you know, collectively were all exhausted at kind of talking about their trans men. So original plumbing gave a home and a voice to a community that didn't have another platform or arena to be able to talk about their whole lives. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, this kind of gets a little bit outside of the scope of the book, but I, I think it is, important to talk about it. So why is it, you know, apart from sort of the um, obvious answers, why is it that um, there's sort of this lack of, you know, even as you were saying, just sort of like um, base level exposure in pop culture to the trans male experience? So what what about in our society sort of prevents um, that from being part of our popular culture? I mean, in short, I would say that it's basically rooted in misogyny, but we can unpack it from there. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I think that, you know, people uh, like to see, I think that the larger world likes to sort of gaze at trans people as, as uh, others or outsiders. And now there's this sort of new awakening that I do think that, um, you know, original plumbing had a, had a a big hand in being a catalyst for uh, media to kind of, represent trans people and, and sort of led the way in, in effect in some ways uh, to kind of opening up this trans media revolution that's happening. But even within that, trans men are just now kind of emerging. And what year was Laverne Cox on the cover of Time? Was that 2011? It was early on. So I think in 2010, 2011. Right. And even then, it's like, you know, we're 10 years later, there's still a lack of representation around trans men. And, and that experience to me feels very much rooted in 
misogyny and, and the patriarchy, to be honest. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, too, it comes down to, you know, and many other authors have spoken about this, but just sort of how the dominant, you know, perception of what masculinity is also is not just sort of how people are viewing sort of quote unquote appropriate maleness to be, but it also is wrapped up in um, sexuality and also, you know, like you were saying sort of at the title of this book, sort of anatomy as well. And it's just sort of like, you know, it's all wrapped up in this sort of, you know, as we call an academia, sort of this hegemonic masculinity, right. That is sort of pervasive in our culture. Um, But I thought that was just really important to point out sort of, like you said, even though, you know, we're kind of, into this era where we're starting to get some exposure in pop culture to the trans male experience. It's certainly very minimal, right? Definitely. And I think that the thing with original plumbing, it shows that there is just as there is many, just as with every person, there's every, everyone has a different type of masculinity um, and femininity. And with original plumbing, it showcases a diverse group of people in every issue that shows you there's not just one way to be masculine or to be transgender. And sometimes masculinity has nothing to do with, you know, sometimes that's not like someone's like number one goal with becoming, with transitioning. It does, you know, like you could identify as a trans man and not have any interest in, in masculinity or of trying to fit into any sort of masculine mold. Yeah. In some ways too, it's sort of like uh, the, the emergence of the, the umbrella term trans masculine happened after original plumbing started um so and that lately i've been kind of wrestling with this this notion that you know if trans masculine was uh part of of this collection or or at the beginning stages if that language kind of existed um how would that have affected the magazine because we were showcasing trans men and uh, being a man is very different than being masculine and i think that that uh that term is it is problem is not problematic, but it's uh, reductive in this way that you know gender expression is very different than gender and gender identity. Uh, to be a man does not mean you have to be masculine or that you even have to kind of own any sort of masculinity. So that it sort of like begs the question of like, is that language enough to uh, to kind of represent what it means to be a man? And how do we sort of sort those things out? Because even in our our conversation so far, we've kind of hit on like representing all different types of masculinity, but original plumbing actually just represented all different types of what it meant to be a trans man. And a lot of the trans men we featured would not identify with being masculine. And then also with, with, in terms of like trans men being like, like saying that original plumbing was all trans men, at the time that we started, we always did have the tagline trans male culture. And I think for that reason, non-binary and trans masculine people did gravitate towards the magazine and want to contribute or be featured in it because they did still feel at home, even if they didn't necessarily say, I am a trans man, you know, that was something. Rocco, did you notice how that happened? Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, that, that's a really interesting point to think about, you know, because of the ever-changing or sort of ever-developing nature and the language that we use to talk about certain issues in society, it kind of like is an interesting retrospective in that in that regard. Um, but sort of, you know, going into that multiplicity that you're referring to, I wanted to start with uh, one of the first issues that this edited volume highlights, which is the hair issue, because I think this highlights sort of an interesting multiplicity that you, you all are pointing out. And so, you know, I was particularly struck by the Dear Testosterone article or the Dear Testosterone letter. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit about that or just a little bit about that issue in general? Like, why was that important to make itself a whole issue? I mean, I think we always like we when we first started making this magazine, we we sat down and we wrote a list of of themes that we thought would be really fun to work on and to be, you know to focus have an entire issue be focused around. And I think that hair was an obvious choice because a lot of trans men, when they go on hormones, they 
become very excited about every hair that they're growing. But then also with that, there's also hair loss that sometimes we don't always think about. You know, not everybody has that like thought process of I'm going to lose, I might, I might have male pattern baldness now. But anyway, the obsession, the obsession of hair was an obvious choice for us. Well, I can also speak to that too, if that's helpful. Uh, I think like hair is something that all men kind of think about. Um, there's so many products that are involved in, in, in male culture kind of supporting hair growth and, and supporting the issues of hair loss that, uh, that it seemed like an obvious kind of secondary thing. And there's so many ways that we could play with it. And I think deer testosterone is this beautiful kind of playful example of how, uh, your relationship to hair changes as a result of introducing testosterone as the dominant hormone in your body. So another issue that um, really stood out to me, or at least a particular um, facet of the issue, um, was inside of the family issue, um, because, you know, you talk a lot about um, the dynamic nature of family and, and I was really struck by the letter correspondence between um, your two mothers, your mothers. So what inspired that idea? And, you know, what did they write about in this correspondence? And what, what is their relationship like? I think that uh, immediately we were, we kicked around that idea uh, instead of letters from us, that it would be sweet to kind of show our, our familial uh, relationships and support in that way. And then, what sprung up out of it that was unexpected was, you know, I had been pretty far into my transition at that time. And my mom has always been really great with my transition. She never fumbled pronouns or name or skipped a beat, really. Um, she was pretty advanced with her understanding and her care and her unconditional loving of me. But uh, it had never occurred to me that she was in a vacuum with her experience and that and watching that letter writing correspondence with with her and Amos's mom Carol was this beautiful moment where I saw that my mom actually got to kind of have communications around things that she probably had never said aloud to another person and uh their letter writing went on for a few years after that issue came out too yeah they 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 carried on and I thought that it was really a fun kind of an honoring of both of our mothers because we did have the privilege of having mothers who were both filled with unconditional love and support for not only us, but also for the project of original plumbing and our, and both of our artistic careers. And that's just a very, I think it's, it was just something that felt, it felt like the perfect place kind of have this space for, for our moms to, to, to voice their, their thoughts to each other in, in a way where they could also connect. Did you get any um, sort of feedback from other people um, that were reading the magazine or subscribers um, about the the family issue or that sort of letter writing in particular? Yeah, it tends not to so be much. People oh. oh, sorry. To stick out people more than it does to trans people, um, at least in terms of giving us feedback. I think that the letter writing specifically has been a, a favorite amongst most cisgender people that give us feedback about that issue. Um, but in general, the family issue tends to be something that people really value as a resource um, in a way that maybe other uh, themes that we dealt with were not as um, resource heavy. Uh, I think that, yeah, I think that, and again, for like cis people who are trying to be allies, um, it's a great resource because it kind of uh, deals with the in intricate nature of what it means to to find to lose to choose family for trans people yeah and it was also like i maybe the only or the first issue that was family friendly so any so you know it would be a, a, a young kid could read it and not come across like certain you know specific language that might be a little like hypersexual or whatever you know we, we was like an all ages <clears throat> issue and I guess we never really thought much about ages before. We were working on an issue with children and with a child on the cover, <laughs> but but I, we did make a, a point to like to 
be able to call it, we wanted to make sure we could call it all ages so that young trans kids could find this and read it and, and not get in, you know, necessarily get in trouble for it being like an adult uh, magazine. Yeah. And I think there's some there, you know, and there's parent trans parents in there and then there's parents of trans kids in there. And then our own parents are featured in it in this way that I think that, you know, there it's not lost on us culturally yet that, uh, that, you know, people aren't that supportive of trans people. And so to have an issue that's dedicated to people who do support the trans people in their lives, um, is, is important. It's important work to show that. And I think that it's affects change to kind of see people modeling unconditional love. And that's not to say that it's not uncomplicated because it's, it is complicated, unconditional love, but it's also just this, this really beautiful, simple expression of how to be better to your trans kid or to the trans person in, in your family. And I, one, one thing that was, that was unfortunately had to be cut from the book, but that still remains in the original magazine, which we, do, we actually still have original copies of the magazine available at originalplumbing.com for people who might want to see like every article you know, that didn't make it into the book. There was a whole series we did at the Philadelphia Trans Health Conference one year, which is an annual conference, which is now called the Philly Wellness Conference, uh, where we set up um, a photo studio little thing in the corner and people came by and we interviewed them and photographed kids and, and their parents and just all types of people who were there. And it was just so much love and support and a really diverse background of group of people. I'm sad we didn't get to keep that in, but you know, we did have to cut some things. Yeah. And I would definitely encourage all readers of this book to go check out all those different articles because I had, you know, I think like you were saying, this is not sort of an all encompassing everything that has ever been in original plumbing, but you know, just going through what is in this edited volume, I felt like not only did I learn a lot, but I also got sort of, it would pique my interest about certain aspects that I was like, Oh, I didn't really think about that. I wish I would learn more. So I'm glad that that's like a resource that's uh, readily available. And, you know, much like how you're saying the family issue sort of is, it can be used in multiple ways and sort of different issues within the magazine sort of can serve different purposes depending on sort of who the reader is and what the intention of it is. Um, And one of the issues that also is, now becoming part of a national conversation sort of in a different way, but was the jock issue. And particularly, you bring attention to um, athletes who are trying to compete, right? But then there's sort of this conversation within the sports realm about who can compete, who, can, who can't compete, depending on, you know, at time, it, you know, the metrics seem to change is one of the things that you point out, right? Sometimes it's hormones, sometimes it's genitalia, you know, what be it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of what inspired um, the jock issue and, you know, what ruminations you have on on that sort of conversation that's happening in the sports world now. I think neither Amos nor I ever gave a a shit about sports, but um, (laughs) we understood that it was a serious point of contention. And I think it was coming up, especially with high alums at that time. Um, So. Yeah, there was like we did feel like we knew that we had to do a jock issue or some sort of sport issue eventually because people would request it and be like, when are you going to do a sporty issue or something? And we were like, eventually. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that the timing was right when we were able to put it together. And it was a lot more fun than I, you know, it, it was just, I just wasn't as educated on it. So I'm glad that we had people like T. Cooper who had written who had done an interview with Chris Mosier and Kai Alam um, about the, their very specific um, experiences um, that, you know, I wasn't aware of either until I heard about it. Yeah. Now, and now uh, Chris Mosier is a Nike sponsored Olympic athlete, which he wasn't at the time. Um, so I think a lot has changed and a film just came out called game changers. That's making the circuit about teenagers who are uh, on their high school teams, um, a couple track uh, 
athletes, um, a young trans guy who was a wrestler on his high school team. Um, and then that, that film specifically is dealing with what team should they be allowed to play with. And it's really an intense kind of depiction of watching these adults debate whether or not these children should be allowed to play sports because of their trans identity. So I think that all of that's kind of coming to a head again. And, you know, with this current administration, it's not the most um, hospitable world for trans people again. Um, it seems like we were making headway and making progress, and now we're just taking a couple steps backward. Um, so we're dealing with the same things that we dealt with 10 years ago. Um, and and so watching it play out on teenagers in this film is really quite uh, devastating and interesting. Yeah, and, you know, unfortunately, I feel like, you know, so I'm in an education department currently, and, you know, whenever, um, you know, issues around sort of gender, sexuality, um, trans students in general come up at K through 12 schooling environments, it's usually the teachers and the parents that have the issues. It's never usually the students, right? I mean, certainly there is bullying that happens peer to peer, but like you were saying, you know, mirroring sort of the experience in this film, it's usually just watching adults sort of argue about experiences that aren't their own, um, which has its own issues, right? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that listeners of this channel, you know, interested in gender studies or, you know, in academia around gender studies are, you know, exposed to the folks that you talk about in the hero issue. But that's sort of another issue that, um, you know, was highlighted in this book. And I want, I, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about a few of the folks that were featured in the hero issue and uh, why are their stories so important? Well, this issue was like one of our favorites, I think, right? Like definitely one of the top issues that we've ever put out. And it was just like so incredible to be able to, we really took our time with it. I think it took like almost a year to get this one out. But and it's these people are so double. Oh, sorry, go on. It's double the size too. Yeah, and these people are so important because they're really like this is a, we have to do our own history in order to find out who came before us. Like trans people who have who are in who have created their own lives are not covered in history books, even if they've been you know they've been around in the eighteen hundreds and things like that. Our stories are erased. Um, so. Being able to talk to someone like Jameson Green and like Kate Bornstein and having people feature Lou Sullivan and like the original, well, in the original copy of the magazine, we were able to republish FTMI International Newsletter, which was like the first newsletter in America that was all about trans men and connecting the community in that way that Lou Sullivan started. It was just like made me feel like we were connecting with our own family. Mm -hmm. I think, it, and to your question too of, of why is it important, I think that it's incredibly important, for, obviously, for what Amos just said of preserving and archiving our own history. Um, you know, and the, these people like Kate Bornstein and Jameson Green or Jason Cromwell, um, they all, whose writing appeared in that issue, um, they all, uh, they were the only people that existed for me who had done the work when I began my transition to kind of be able to kind of decipher. Uh, that that people like me existed and that they were adults and they were thriving and they were writing books and they were creating culture and they were documenting culture. And I think that from uh, I've always been interested in the generations of queer people that came before me. And I, I think Amos and I, when we first, in our first year, we discussed if this became a viable thing that went on for a while that we would want to build to the place of being able to interview some of these heroes and document their work and their legacy to kind of preserve that, that piece of history within this magazine and this project. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's so spot on in terms of highlighting, you know, how important it is to see yourself reflected, you know, especially when it comes to history and culture and all that, you know, even in, you know, when we're talking about school curriculum, right. It's like, basically everyone that isn't a white straight dude is erased from that historical narrative. And that certainly has ramifications for, 
you know, everyone in the classroom that is trying to sort of self-actualize and sort of, you know, find their identity. I think it um, creates but, an environment where you can't imagine your future and you can't even begin to imagine adulthood. And I think that, you know, part of uh, mental health issues for young queer kids could be addressed by showing them that a future is possible and showing them that that they didn't just that they're not um, their identity is not new that it's as old as time it's just not well documented and I think for personally uh, because I couldn't imagine myself in the future because I couldn't see myself in the future and that's why representation and media are so crucial and life saving even uh, is because if you don't see yourself and you can't imagine yourself and you don't have access to language to even describe what you might be feeling, then, then how are you expected to uh, have an adulthood even? Um, so I think that, you know, at, at its best, that's what original plumbing has done for, for this generation is to kind of show that not only that, you know, trans men exist, but that they are living happy and healthy lives and that they've struggled as well, obviously, but that they were able to make sense of something and self-actualize in this way and then ultimately give hope to others who might be struggling with that. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, you know, everything you said is, you know, spot on and why that's so important. Um, and I, I do want to like highlight too one of the uh, issues that was also featured in the book because I think this is something that, you know, it, in a larger sort of macro scale, it's often ignored sort of how experiences can change so drastically depending on your sort of physical regional location, right? So you have the, the issue where you go to, or maybe not go to physically, but you sort of highlight Atlanta, right? So, so what did you learn or sort of what were the different experiences that were highlighted in that issue? In Atlanta, we ended. We went to a different conference. Uh, that started off our, our trip when we were going there to, to photograph and interview some local guys. And I think my first impression was that the community was so large and so warm, and and that it wasn't so. It, it was like multiple communities, but they all came together. Does that make sense? Like there, like we interviewed um, the men of Onyx which is a leather club for men of color. And it was, they were at the, the Eagle nightclub, which is where we had an event one night. And they were around, like, it was just, it was a very diverse community. I'm just going to say it that way. Like it was, and it was really warm. And I've never really experienced that before in growing up, like in, you know, the Northeast. <clears throat> yeah. I think that from my experience of, uh, traveling as uh, and playing shows as an openly trans person, then I, I uh, got to see these communities all across America, and um, subsequently learned uh, at a pretty early age that um, southern or small town queer communities have less divisiveness because of they based out of necessity. So they need to, even if there's infighting and and clicky kind of behavior that happens in all queer scenes, um, they all come back together. And there's more of a true sense of what I think the word community means. You can really feel that in a Southern, a Southern or small town in America. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought that issue and, or at least the portions that were highlighted in the book, well, is so interesting. Um, and again, it just, you know, like I said, sort of sparked that thought of, you know, we don't usually, when we think about, you know, especially in the gender studies literature, right? I think that region is usually sort of a um, identity category that is neglected, you know, and it, not really sort of highlighted in any sort of meaningful way, even though, you know, your experiences in the Northeast, I'm sure as you said, are much different than that of, of Atlanta and then probably much different than, you know, in California. And I think that's so important that you were able to highlight that in that issue. Now, this is kind of uh, one that moves away from sort of the, the chronological order of the book. But throughout the book, there are these um, portions where you're able to highlight pieces of 
uh, literature or popular culture that is usually not viewed in sort of a um, sort of trans male cultured lens, but it really is. And you sort of highlight why that is and why these certain stories um, should be viewed in that way. So I was wondering if you could like highlight some of those pieces of pop culture that are important to uh, male trans popular culture. Can you give an example of what piece you're talking about? Is it one of the um, pieces about trans films or films that are trans through history or is there something specific? Yeah, so it was the films, but also you bring reference to um, some um, works by Shakespeare and stuff like that. I'm flipping through the book so that I can get a good look. That was in the... There's one that's yeah, about film and then one about literature. I think, yeah. I think like... Um, uh, oh, that's the by, both were by Henry, right? Henry Giardina. That I think that Henry is a great example of that. He kind of queers, or he transes the lens of many things. And I think that that, like, that it was really cool to find Henry Giardina. How do you say his last name? Giardini? <laughs> Giardina? I'm, I'm okay. probably butchering it as well, but Giardina. Um, <laughs> he's, he it does such an incredible job of pointing out the... Um, hidden but overt transness of cultural moments. Um, so it was a, a big boon for us to, to get him um, to, to submit and kind of consistently write for OP. Yeah, his, ex- his experience and his lens specifically is someone who his, his work usually appears in, you know, like the New Yorker or, you know, like very large mainstream magazine like publications so um i'm not i think we might have been one of the first trans specific publications that he had uh written for so it was yeah it's very special yeah and i just thought you know um some of the examples you know that um are highlighted at least in the um portion that is about um Literature, you know, there are examples from Twelfth Night, Hamlet, um, Metamorphoses, you know, things like this that I think, like you said, um, Henry does a great job of sort of, I, I guess that would be the best way to describe it, sort of using a trans lens to sort of look at these pieces of popular culture in a, in a different way, and in then, a sort of helpful And way. speaking in broad terms of answering your question, I would say that, you know, when there is a lack of representation or um, art or media made about a specific experience, then you're left to kind of attach your experience to what does exist, which is in effect, like in moments of pop culture, an easy one for me was like when uh, that show Smallville came out, uh, that was such a, like, it's just, it's about Superboy, but I was going through the beginning of my transition or Spider-Man too. When, when I was just beginning my transition, I, there wasn't anything that reflected what I was going through, but watching Peter Parker watch his body change in this way that then he had to kind of make sense with it. And he couldn't really disclose all of this information. And even as he's like falling in love with, um, what's her name? Um, Peter Parker's girlfriend, Mary, whatever her name is. Oh, Mary, Mary Jane. Jane. Yeah. Even as he's like falling in love with her, he can't tell her that all this stuff has happened to his body and changed the man that he is. Um, so I think like, you know, it's like, those small bits or elements in pop culture are easy for us to attach to. And then, um, you know, fan fiction is born or uh, essays are written to kind of unpack the the trans undercurrent that exists, obviously, for us, because that's what we have. Yeah, and this next question might be, uh, I wouldn't say impossible to answer, but might be uh, difficult, but you know, it's as you've said throughout our conversation. Um, this magazine, or um, you know, is now sort of um, a decade old. And what is the one thing, or maybe not boiling it down to one thing, is the best way to do this? But what are some things that you've learned throughout, sort of, um, you know, producing and working through the publication of Original Plumbing? What have we learned? 
from 10 years of making a magazine independently? Yes. <laughs> um, I'd say one of the biggest things we've learned is that we are not business people. <laughs> we are creative souls who would have benefited from perhaps a silent third partner who was a business person to handle the logistics of mailing, distribution. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, the things that keep businesses afloat. <laughs> That's definitely a big takeaway from doing this project. And then in terms of like trans culture for the past 10 years, I think like one thing that I won't take for granted and especially kind of observing others in generously kind of um, allowing us to, to include them in this project is that there's no one way to be a man of trans experience or to be a man or to be a woman or to be a non-binary person. There's no one expression of it. And our relationship to our identities shifts constantly and beautifully. And I don't think, I think that more than anything, um, offering this project to the com larger LGBT community and specifically to the, the T part of that community, I think that um, a big takeaway from me is that I, a takeaway and a hope is that um, I hope that we figure out to kind of how to, model what what I was talking about with like southern or small town community where we hold space for each other to be imperfect and um messily uh continue to create and create space, create art, uh translate our experiences and our identities and that we allow ourselves and each other to do that at, to the best of our ability um and really try to actually be a community. Yeah, and this is another sort of tough question, perhaps. Um, but do either of you have a um, favorite issue that you produced in Original Plumbing? For me, it's the hero issue. Yeah, the hero issue was my favorite because I learned so much. And I just felt very humbled. And it just felt very personal at the same time. And then I enjoyed the entertainment issue creatively because I photographed the entire thing, which I had done in the earlier issues, but something about that issue, I felt very inspired by like early interview magazine, visually, aesthetically, and getting to photograph all of the folks who were in that magazine. In that issue, they were all artists, performers, comedians. So it was a special kind of um, creative shoot at each time. It's just memorable for me. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit about how in this book and sort of in the magazine as well, I'm sure, um, how much the visual sort of plays into the magazine itself, right? I know that there's um, a little bit of one issue that talks about sort of the selfie. And, you know, like you said, you've used photographs throughout sort of the different issues. So what, what role did sort of the visual representation play um, besides the obvious of just representing it visually, um, in the creation of and production of original plumbing? Well, I think right off the bat, it was like, it was a photo-heavy project, and it, that was like, <clears throat> the concept was a photo-heavy project to document trans male culture. So going into it that way, it's like full color, sometimes black and white, but like just really wanting it to be the visuals were just as important as the other aspects of it. And in some ways, almost more, right? Because I think Amos had a very clear um, idea what he wanted to create aesthetically and, uh, and being the, the photographer of this project. Um, I think that that uh, created the overall vibe. And then also having uh, all of the pictures of trans people being uh, taken with a trans guy behind the lens is going to shift what that feels like and what that looks like and what that reads as, because for the most part, up until original plumbing, uh, the majority of documentation that was happening of trans people was by cisgender people. So having the project be rooted in, in largely the photographs being taken by other trans people was really imperative. And then overall the aesthetic is like 
we could have made this project. And if it wasn't as aesthetically driven, it would have never become or been what it was. Because in effect, we were creating a larger culture. And it was a culture that was exciting and beautiful and inspiring. And it was something that people wanted to be a part of. And I think that if the magazine didn't look the way that it did, we wouldn't have inspired all of those feelings of people wanting to be a part of this this movement and uh, creating trans culture. Yeah, and that, and that's why you know I would encourage everyone to sort of check out you know your website and the issues that weren't or the not the issues the parts of the issue that weren't able to make the book. Um, in addition to getting the book, but you know I've I've taken up a lot of both of your time today. Um, so I just wanted to, um, you know, if the people listening to this are really, you know, interested and curious about um, learning more about sort of the themes that are explored in this book or in your magazine, do you have any book recommendations or sort of other media recommendations for our listeners that if they want to learn more about this subject or adjacent ones? Sure. Yeah. I think the first book I yeah. read of trans, uh, trans man's life was Jameson Green's uh, Becoming a Visible Man. Um, that's about to be reprinted by Vanderbilt Press. So I highly recommend everyone read that. Um, Kate Bornstein is kind of the originate, original gender outlaw. So she had a book in the early 2000s that was called uh, My Gender Workbook. That's another great entry point. Um, mm-hmm. One of the original photo one. books that, oh, sorry, I was just going <laughs> to go for it. Yeah. Um, Body Alchemy. Oh, yeah. Uh, transsexual Portraits, uh, photographs by Lauren Cameron, who was um, trans male photographer, still is. Um, and one of the first times I think both of us had seen trans bodies uh, reflected, taken by a trans person of themselves and of other people in their community yeah. from like, what is it, the 80s? No, it's from the, it's from the 90s. late 90s. Yeah. Um... That and then there's another book that followed shortly after called Phallus Palace by Dean Katula. Mm. It was essays written by him and other people, and um, uh, tons of photos in that book as well. Uh, and then Testosterone Some, Files was a book by yes. Maxwell Filario that was really good about the trans male experience. Um, there's a book about Lou Sullivan called Daring to Be a Man Among Men, and it's written by Bryce D. Smith and. Uh, Lou Sullivan was one of the earlier, a, a gay trans man who had to fight to be recognized as a transgender person or as a transsexual um, because doctors would not uh, acknowledge that he, could, he was both trans and wanted to date men. So it's a fascinating, it's an amazing story, beautifully researched by Bryce Smith. And then also around Lou Sullivan in September, um, there's going to be a a book called We Both Laughed in Pleasure, The Selected Diaries of Lou Sullivan um, by Night Boat, Boat Books. And that's going to be his actual, he wrote like diaries from age 10 until he died at age 40 or so. So it's like the best of his diaries through the years, which is incredible. I was just reading an advanced copy and it's very interesting. Yeah, those those all sound like excellent recommendations. Um but, you know, I think this is an appropriate question to leave our audience on. But, you know, I, I encourage everyone to pick up sort of this this edited volume, Original Plumbing, The Best 10 Years of Trans Male Culture. But if, if you two were to have sort of, you know, people pick up this book, what would be the one big takeaway you would hope that they would get from this particular uh, edited volume? For me, the first moment that I held this book felt like uh, similar to the first moment that I held that book, Body Alchemy. I still have the copy that I got in the year 2000, and it's, you know, it's well-worn, and I was obsessed with it. I memorized every detail of every picture. I memorized everyone's story. I longed to meet them. I longed to be that person that was in, in a book like that. And then receiving, like, you know, we worked two years with Feminist Press to to get this book um, to where it's at present day. And, and once I held it, I felt that same kind of excitement and I felt inspired and hopeful that this book would end up being a touchstone in the same way that that book was for me uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, I love the idea that this book is 10 years. It's like a snapshot. It's like a time capsule. 
of a very specific part of trans male culture and with a very strong lens and strong voices behind it. And I just hope that younger generations and whoever hasn't, maybe older, gener- older generations who had never seen this before, take a look at it with an, you know, with an open heart, open eyes, and just enjoy it. Yeah, I think those are all great takeaways. And again, the book is called Original Plumbing, The Best 10 Years of Trans Male Culture. Amos and Rocco, thank you so much for joining the New Books Network. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was really fun. 